got our Bibles? Yes. Let's just very quickly go to the Word of God and see what we can share with you this morning about the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The more I study, the more I'm writing this book, the more I realize the cross is pivotal and it stands at the center of history for the entire world. Amen. I don't know about you, but it changed my history. <laughs> it also changed my future. And it's definitely impacted on and changed my present. So it has changed everything. One of the things that, and I will cover it probably in the book as well, is that Jesus came when he first came. His first coming was his birth. Is that okay? And uh, he came again in a sense in the descent, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But his second coming, his second coming was in judgment on Jerusalem with its temple and practices and religion in A.D. 70. So a lot of what the Bible is talking about as his coming was that coming. But when he came, it was to end his coming as the Son of Man. And as the Son of Man, he submitted to, he fulfilled the law, born of a virgin, born of a woman, born under the law, only one that fulfilled the law. Once fulfilled, that law needed to be terminated because it was only put in in parenthesis. It was an interjection into the history of mankind for a period of time. It began to put an arrest on death and sin or sin and death. But it wasn't the full revelation because the typology all the way through, God didn't promise Eve and Adam or Adam that he would crush the serpent's head and that I will then one day give you a law and you will overcome. He said, you know, she will bear a seed and the seed will crush the head. So Jesus was always in the mind of God. Is that okay? And so when that legal system finished, that law system finished, the Jews were completely rebellious against it, and so was Israel. You know, all of the people of God, the Pharisees, they were completely rebellious, wouldn't submit to it anyway, even though they had entered into an agreement. And the Bible then begins to talk about the day of God's wrath and the day of vengeance. That's not coming in the future. That was in the future to those people, and their future ended AD 70. Is that okay? But it would be a day of vengeance, it would be a time of wrath, and it would be the judgment of God. And I'm saying this all for a very good reason. And so I'm covering all of that in detail in the book. So he came as the son of man. Okay, can I finish the story for you? As the son of man, he ended his ministry as the son of man with a judgment on Jerusalem and the temple and the sacrifices. It then marked the beginning in totality. It marked the beginning of the coming of the kingdom of God. Is that okay? Because it could now fully come. The reason why it couldn't come before, because there was a system in place that was in decline. Nevertheless, it was in place. And so that had to be finished. And that's why Paul says, what is obsolete in aging will soon pass away. And when it's removed... Then the second lot of principles or the second thing can be established, which was the kingdom. And when that happened, using symbolism, he says basically that the kingdom has come and you will see Jesus as the king enthroned, coming. That was the beginning. But there will be another appearance of Christ. But it's when he comes back to us as the Lord of glory. Is that okay? Good. 
So the reason why I wanted to mention that was particularly on the wrath side and the judgment side. But there is, and I think it's a reaction to that period in our lives that many of us witnessed and experienced and lived through about the anger of God, the wrath of God, the vengeance of God, where God was portrayed as this angry God that was ready to beat you over the head any time you sinned. You read the story of Martin Luther, and that's how he felt about God. Yeah. I mean, so what a lot of them would do was, okay, God, don't worry, we'll beat ourselves. So they used to whip themselves, sleep on cold floors, do whatever to punish the body, because the body was viewed as evil. So there was such wrong theology, and I think at the moment there's a knee-jerk reaction gone to it, and you hear a lot of preachers you know, and people saying, I don't believe a loving God would dangle people over the fires of hell to get them to love him. Mm-mm. So they're wrong. They're wrong. So first of all, God doesn't dangle them over hell. No, the ones who don't believe in him go to hell. Yeah. There is a hell, church. Amen. There is a place called a lake of fire. There is a hell. And there is a real devil. So they try and tone that down because like the harshness, the severity of wrath just seems too much. I was talking to someone the other day and we were talking about raising children and the necessity of discipline. And for sake of explaining, we often say that with children you need love and discipline. And I hate using those two terminologies because it reinforces something in our minds. And that is that discipline is something separate from love. Can I repeat that? As if discipline is something separate from love. When you talk about raising children, we should be able to just say, raise your children in love. In brackets, of which an aspect of that love will be discipline. And that discipline is not to be done in flashes of anger, though you may be angry, because you can be angry and sin not. Come on, church. You can be, and Jesus was angry when he cleared the temple, but he didn't sin. The emotion of anger is given to bring reform. This is a really good message becoming. I didn't plan this. But the emotion of anger is not sinful if expressed right. Is that okay? So God's love is there. And so is his righteousness. Is that okay? And they're perfectly blended. So I raised my children with love. Sometimes that love looked like a good hiding. It didn't change the fact that I loved them. But a justice needed to be done. A change needed to come. Is that all right? Something needed to be instilled in them that at the end result of that behavior, there is a consequence. So rather let me, who loves you, train you, which is what discipline means. Let me train you rather than someone who doesn't love you, like the boss when he fires you, like the policeman when he arrests you, like the judge when he sends you to jail. They don't love you. They're just doing a job. But consequence you will have. Amen? 
And so that thing is there in the world. And so a lot of preachers are just, they're so overwhelmed with the love of God. And you cannot overstate the love of God. You can't. We haven't even begun to understand the love of God. But there's so much an overstatement of the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God. It's as if when you read their quotes and their sayings and their writings, that God is going to somehow say, well, you know, at the end of it all, you know, you've rejected me all of your life. I've loved you all the way through. I've tried to reach you. But somehow, somehow that love is just going to make a way for them that they escape hell. They will still end up there. God's fierce and fiery love will love them to the last moment. But he will not compromise his righteousness and his justice. And somehow before you close your eyes, quickly go like, all right, I'll bypass the cross and I'll stick you in heaven. Can I continue a little bit? So the apostle Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 11. And he says, what I want you to consider, and I mean, you know, we love preaching it. When grace came out, we were all preaching it. Hey, brother, it's not the anger of God that leads you to repentance. It's the kindness of God. I mean, we all want the kindness of God. But look at what Paul says in Romans eleven twenty two. He says, consider, therefore, the kindness. Woo! Thank you, Jesus. Grace. Woo! Fall on the floor. Grace. And I'm not mocking fall on the floor. I love falling on the floor. The kindness, the kindness of God. But then he goes on and he says, and the sternness of God. God can be stern. So the sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. Come on, there's a lot of people paraphrasing Bibles and writing it and all this kind of thing. And they put all the lacquer scriptures in. They don't go to these scriptures and put them in. So what am I trying to tell you? You all sinned and going to hell. No, I'm not. So just relax. Okay, so say an amen every now and then. All right. So it's overstated. The love of God is overstated. So it's because the church at one stage, their message was, Turn them on. Hell hath no fire escapes. You know, you're all going to be toast, you know. God's going to have a big bry. God doesn't dangle people over hell. They get there all on their own by the rejection of the means of salvation. What about in Korah's rebellion, for goodness sake, when God said to the Levites and them, separate yourselves from Korah and all his men. And it says, and the ground opened and hell swallowed them. A physical thing happened that they saw. Listen, that hell hasn't gone away because we're in the place of grace. It's still there. There is still a consequence for sin. There is still many words in the Bible about to him who believes. To him who believes, he gives the right to become sons of God. To him who believes, there has to be an inner response. You're not saved before you were born. Just like Jesus was not crucified before the creation of the world. You got saved on a particular day at a particular time. You weren't saved from eternity. The plan of God for salvation was from eternity. And in the foreknowledge of God, he knew you would get saved. But you got saved in time and space. Before that, before you got saved, you were an object of wrath. You were under curse, the curse of disobedience. 
you were under the sternness of God. And if it wasn't for the grace and mercy of God, if you had died before then, you would have ended up in hell. I think, I think that the cross is being tampered with these days because of the incredible revelation we are getting of the fierce, awesome, incredible, amazing, unbelievable, outrageous love of God. But hey, let's look at the description of that love. 1 Corinthians 13 verses, what is it, six, five, six, seven, somewhere around there, where it says, Love does not rejoice with evil, but delights in the truth. So Acts 2.23 says, maybe we should just move off that subject. Have you all got it? So the love of God, when we speak of, for God so loved the world, implicit in it, is also the sternness for those who reject him. He does not send them to hell. They find their own way there by their decision and their rejection of him. Is God sorrowed? Yes. Is God grieved? Yes. Is God heartbroken? Absolutely. Does his fierce, white, hot love pursue them right to the gates of hell? Yes. But there are still those who end up there because of the rejection of Christ. We've settled that. The cross. Acts 2.23. Talking about Jesus being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Peter speaking. He says, Ye have taken, and by wicked hands, ye have crucified and slain him. Something that happened in time, in space, determined by the foreknowledge of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So the predetermined foreknowledge of God saw that by the Holy Spirit it was already written in Scriptures all the way through Scripture. That's why even on Emmaus Road to the disciples that just didn't understand what was happening concerning the crucifixion, Jesus opened up the prophets and the law in one reference and another time when he was speaking, even the book of Psalms, and he explained to them from Scripture that I should be crucified. So what would be the point of Jesus coming and dying for our sins if he didn't need to and if we all ended up with God anyway? Let's pack it up. Let's forget it. I mean, you know, I love you and all, but geez, like, it would have been nice to have been fishing this morning. Yeah. Do you understand what I'm saying? What would be the purpose? And so he continues. So John 19, 17 to 18, and he bearing his cross went into a place called the place of the skull where they crucified him. It's amazing that Jewish tradition says that Adam... Something happened to his body, but his skull they found, and they took it and buried it just outside Jerusalem at that mountain. That's why that mountain is called the place of the skull, not because it just looks like a skull. So there's the place of the skull of the first Adam. And then the second Adam comes and dies on the cross. The last man, second man. Is that okay? I mean, so there's a whole message in there from 1 Corinthians 15. John C. Ryle says this. Because of this, you must know his cross, or else you will die in your sins. Unless you know the power of Christ's cross by experience, 
unless you are willing to confess that your salvation depends entirely on the work that Christ did upon the cross, Christ will profit you nothing. Beware of a religion without the cross. There are hundreds of places of worship in which there is everything almost except the cross. There are thousands of religious books in which there is everything except the cross. If Christ had not gone to the cross and suffered in our stead, the just for the unjust, there would have been not a spark of hope for us. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, The cross passes judgment upon us all, for you cannot remain neutral in the presence of the cross. That's why I preach that message. The cross is the judgment seat of Christ. At the same time, it is the mercy seat of Christ. Amen. So I just want to just talk to you a little bit about the cross, and I just want to give you a couple of things. Some I'm going to just mention. Is that okay? For time's sake. But there's one or two things that I would like to just have a look at. And the first one is a very fancy English technological, theological word, and it's called the word expiation, expiate. Expiation means the removal of our sin and guilt. Christ's death removes or expiates not only our sin, but the guilt associated with the sin. What would have been the benefit if Jesus had died and he just took away the sin, but we were still plagued with the sense of unrighteousness and unworthiness all of our lives. He took away the guilt as well as the guilt feelings he removed from us. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 53, 4 to 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. All we leaves no one out. Is that okay? We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, that is Jesus, the iniquity of us all. That word iniquity in the Hebrew word is avon, and it means guilt. But not only guilt, what it means is the punishment associated with the guilt. So when God laid on him the iniquity of us all, he laid on him our sin, our rebellion, but he also laid on him the punishment for that rebellion, and he laid on him the guilt of that rebellion, and he set us free from it. Amen? And so expiation is something that is really incredible, that he took away our sin and our guilt. I mean, isn't it amazing? The apostle Paul who murdered Christians killed Christians, was able to stand, and in one of his epistles he says, my conscience is clear before God and man. Is that okay? My conscience is clear before God and man. I remember Prophet Kerbis always told me a really funny story. Well, he told many, but we, we were talking about it one day. And he said he got some speeding fines, and the one was quite hefty because Prophet Kerbis had a big right foot, and he wouldn't speed. It would just fall heavy on the accelerator. You know, One time he got a vamped-up AMG, and from the church there in Stillfontaine, I think it's only about a kilometer to the main road, I think we were hitting somewhere over 200 kilometers an hour. Halfway down, he was hitting the brakes, and we were like, for 500 meters, trying to slow down. I must admit, I was a little bit nervous. And... Um, so he liked the right foot. But anyway, he ends up in court in front of the judge. And the judge starts to <laughs> read out a list of his traffic fines, especially the really bad one for which he should have been arrested. And he said, John, I'm, honestly, 
he said, um, you know, you know, Jacobus, whatever, Janser von Rensburg. He says, is this you? And he stands up and says, no, your honor. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was fighting with, I was telling, he said, I'm, I'm not being funny. He says, but I don't even remember those. He said, I don't remember them at all. And he said, and, I, and he said, honestly, he said, the judge was getting a little bit angry with him. He paid the fine and everything, the fines and everything like this. He said, but honestly, he said, you know, when I sin, I genuinely accept God's forgiveness. And he's reading these things. I couldn't remember them. I put them past me. So I'm saying, no, that's not me. <laughs> so it's a funny story. But, but isn't it interesting that the cleansing of guilt from us because of the sacrifice of Jesus, because he took away our iniquity, the Avon, and he took away the guilt with the action with the penalty, and he took it all away, that we could think back onto the worst things that we did in our lives, and we are not smitten with guilt, knowing the Holy God. That's incredible. What a gift, expiation. The second thing, and I'll take a few minutes longer on this, is the word propitiation. The word propitiation. This is a really, really interesting one, because I remember preaching... The last time we preached at Easter, which was not last year, it was the year before. I'm so grateful that we can celebrate Easter this year. In Psalm 22, Jesus quotes from Psalm 22 when he's dying on the cross and he says, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I saw that verse for many years that Jesus, that God forsook Jesus because he became sin. And later I realized that that is not true because if you read later down in the psalm, the psalmist actually goes on to say, you have not forsaken me. So when Jesus was quoting, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It spoke of how entirely he identified with us, that he entered into our experience of sin. He became sin, but also our experience of sin where we feel the abandonment of God. But God never turned his back never turned his face. He was full face on Jesus observing the cross. Is that okay? But it went dark for several reasons. It went dark. But Jesus felt the abandonment. So what he felt was the abandonment that our sin, the separation that our sin causes us to feel. Is that okay? And he redeemed us from that. And so Part of the propitiation that we've got to understand is that when he became our sacrifice, he so identified with our sin, our sinfulness, our sense of separation, and he redeemed us from that. That's why the psalmist goes on to say, God never forsook you. God never turns his back on you. God never does. We lose the sense of his presence. That's why then repentance becomes so important for our conscience sake. So that we are restored to fellowship with him. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, so it's our conscience that needs dealing with. So God is still there. I mean, you read with the Jews. He goes, all day long I've held out my hands to a stubborn and obstinate people. God never rejected them. He kept sending prophet after prophet. They stoned and killed them. So when in Israel God called you as a prophet, you had an exciting future. <laughs> That's why they would go like, Eesh. Isaiah and Ezekiel, Eesh, this is a stubborn and obstinate people. Y'all go and prophesy anyway. 
Yeesh, I'll give you a forehead like flint. Hey, but God, you know what they've done to the others, <laughs> you know. And uh, Jesus said it right up to the end, even before the destruction of Jerusalem. He said, I'll send you prophets, but you'll kill them. So I'm so glad that we're after that time, because I would say to everybody, do not call me that name. Okay? And so the word propitiation becomes extremely important. So let's just have a look at it, and then we'll wind down. So here it goes. In Romans chapter 3, verses 25 to 26 in the New American Standard, it says that Jesus was displayed publicly on the cross as a propitiation, technical word. The NIV translates that word, and for good reason, as atonement. Atonement, A-T-O-N-E-M-E-N-T. You can cut that up into three words, at one mint. And so the atonement, what Jesus did, was an at one mint, where he could bring us to be one with God, primarily. One with one another. And of course, the Bible includes the separation historically between Jew and Gentile through the cross. He is made out of the two, one new man by the cross. So we've been all brought into the kingdom. So it's not the Jews, and oh, then the Christians, as if the Jews are the favored children. No, together with us, we become one new man. Amen? So we are not stepchildren, afterthought. We're not the Cinderella's. We're not any of those in the church. His purpose was one new man in Christ. So it says, this was to demonstrate his righteousness. So God had to demonstrate his righteousness. In other words, his justice. Because what he did, just go back to verse 25. And it says, he did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Hold that verse there. He left those sins unpunished. So sins get punished. So the sins prior to him, he left unpunished. He wasn't just killing people, wiping them out as they sinned. Is that okay? In his forbearance, he left them unpunished until Jesus came. And when Jesus died on the cross, he paid historically backwards for every sin of all people. And especially for the Jews, because they would make sacrifices. And they, it was like a lay-by offering. Basically, it was like a lay-by. It was like an installment. It was a faith thing that they were practicing in anticipation of one day. So the sins were held. The sins were covered. And God was patient with it until the time of Jesus. And then he took the sin of the entire whole world, including all the way into the future. Amen. And it was all put on Jesus. And so he says he left them unpunished so the punishment came on Jesus now let's go to verse 26 and he says he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just or righteous or justified in forgiving those who've put their faith in Jesus is that okay so his righteous justice continues towards us who also have sinned but we put our faith in him and he justifiably can now say, I forgive you, based on the fact that someone paid the price and was punished. Come on, church. 
If you don't take that, that's Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. If you don't take it, Paul says, it's like this. You go to the doctor and the doctor says, mm, I've got bad news for you. Um, you're going to die. And soon. And there's no cure for it. Except this syringe here contains the healing for your condition. Yeah. Take it. Let me jab you. You will live. And then you go, no. Let me, um, let me see if I can go jogging. And he says, it ain't going to help. Because that's what they did with the law. And that's what Paul was talking about, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10. He said, there's no other sacrifice for sin left. You can't go back to lambs and bulls and goats and doves. You can't go back because that has ceased to exist. There's one syringe, one injection for sin, and it's the blood of Jesus. One sacrifice. Is that okay? And so the sacrifice of Jesus, and he says he sets it forth as a propitiation. And so what does the word propitiation mean? It's only used in the New Testament in two places. One here, and the second one is really interesting. It's found in, I'm looking for it, Hebrews chapter 9. The word propitiation in the Greek is hilasterion, and in the Greek it's kaporeth. It means to cover. Kapareth or kapar means to cover, to conceal. And the word, it occurs in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 5. Okay? Where basically what God did in the Old Testament, he told the craftsmen to make what we call the Ark of the Covenant. Box and with a lid. The lid had a rim on it. And out of it came two angels like this, that the cherubim that went over and they touched and the glory of God would appear in there under the overshadowing wings. And that's where the glory of God would appear. That's where God would speak to Moses. But that cover that was on top, covering the jar and the rod and the law, on top was a thing called the mercy seat. In the Hebrew, it means atonement. Is that okay? It's interesting that it's above the law. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. Is that okay? And then the overshadowing, the wings of the seraphim actually represent love. So under love is the provision for the mercy of God in the cover that is atonement. And this is where the blood of the animal sacrifices would come and sprinkled seven times before it and then poured in there. So there would be a pool of blood that would cover the legal requirement of punishment for our sins. Isn't that awesome? Come on, church. Just say, yes, thank you, Jesus. Glory, hallelujah, amen. And once the priest had put the blood there, so that cover is called the atonement cover or the mercy seat. That is hilasterion. That is kapeth, that seat over there. And so what God was saying, there's a law that is written against you, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Is that okay? By the blood. That's why Jesus on the cross took those same law, nailed it to the cross, because it was against us. And God said, I'm for you. Is that okay? By his blood. And then once the blood was presented, God would speak from there, 
a word of reconciliation to the people of Israel. Saying there's nothing between us. And there was um, a relief put onto the conscience of the worshippers for another year. When they would do it again, they could walk out and go, I'm forgiven. And they could exit, even though it was a temporary sense, because they would have to do it every year. But God would speak from that place. The glory would speak a word of reconciliation. That's propitiation. Isn't that awesome? Now, the word propitiation, once the sacrifice is presented, and this is very important. It ties up with what I said at the beginning. Are you all following me? The word propitiation is not an appeasement of an angry God who's against you and he's got all these seething feelings of anger because you've sinned. It's not that. Propitiation, the sacrifice, does not make an angry God loving. You've got to understand this. He's loving. But the propitiation, the sacrifice... Where God speaks reconciliation is to obtain from a loving God his continued favor and grace. Can I say that again? The sacrifice is not to change an angry God into a loving God. So I'm all angry. I'm angry. Then you see the sacrifice. You know, like he's mad with you because you blew it this week. You know, and then you go, ah, ha, ha, the cross of Jesus. I'm under his blood. And then the God goes, oh, you got me there, okay. Come here. He doesn't do that. He loves you. He loves you. But what we do lose in sin, in rebellion, is the experience of that love. In the favor and the grace of God. So the propitiation obtains that grace and favor. And then God speaks it. Isn't it amazing that they are sinning? (laughs) These people, they're wicked. They do all these things. And then this poor animal is sacrificed and the blood is sprinkled. And then it's all hunky-dory glory (laughs) for another year. Isn't it amazing? And it was only anticipatory of what Jesus was. We're in the fullness of it. Come on, church. Come on, say amen. amen. The beauty of the cross. And so it's mentioned in a few other places. You know, Hebrews 2.17 says, but it's a different word. The word propitiation is translated from a different Greek word, hilaskamai, which means to be gracious. And it confirms the next point, you know. The same in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. So, in other words, what he was saying is there's reconciliation. Is that okay? We're reconciled to God. I tell you, that reconciliation is just so amazing. It's absolutely incredible. That reconciliation. Because Paul says... That we were at one time alienated from God because of our sins. It's very interesting. For if while we were yet enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? In other words, there's a whole lot more to your salvation than the forgiveness of sins. 
In other words, there's more to our salvation than anything we're experiencing now because of his life. Isn't that right? But we've been reconciled to God. And the reconciliation is not, you know, two people are fighting, two people are ugly, two people don't like each other. And then the pastor decides, let's get together and have communion and break bread. And then they do this fake, let's forgive you thing around the communion table. They take, <laughs> I've done it and it doesn't work with people because it doesn't come from the heart. It needs something that you need to do. So it can't be something that's enforced. But, you know, take them and thank you, Jesus. We forgive. Yes, we forgive you. You know, and then there's no forgiveness. So that reconciliation that God does with us is so profound and so powerful. He never had any negative feelings towards us. We just could not live in his favor because we could not receive it because in our minds we were enemies of God. So once the consciousness is cleansed, we start to experience the favor. And it's not just a little introduction to God. You know, you, you are now reconciled. It's not even an embrace with God. The reconciliation to God that Paul talks about is that we are actually in him. We are in him. We participate in his divine nature, all that he is and all that he's done for us. The third thing is redemption. He redeems us. He redeems us from the guilt of our sin. He redeems us from the power of sin. And he also redeems us from the guilt of sin. The next thing that the cross did is it defeated the powers of darkness. Isn't that awesome? And on the cross, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the blood of the cross. And that legal document that they had that justified every accusation called the law, he even crucified that. Is that okay? He even took you and he put you on the cross. So you died when you put your life, your faith in Jesus. You died death to your past. So it no longer has any hold on you. I mean, it's so powerful. You can preach weeks and weeks and weeks on the power of the cross. And then, last of all, the thing about the cross is that he did it all by dying as our substitute in our place. What he did, he did for us. So the conclusion that I would like to bring to you is two powerful implications come to us immediately out of the cross. And the first one, the cross should forever keep us humble. What Jesus did for us. And secondly, it should then become an example for us in this that greater love has no man for others that he laid down his life for them. And so it serves as an example. So what follows on after the cross for us, after the personal application, it's got a body-wide application, is that I then lay down my life in love to serve you. Amen? So hence the cross. Isn't that glorious? Why don't you give glory to Jesus and say, thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Thank you, Lord. It's so awesome.